I just uh, want to say a couple of things about Dr. Hickson. He uh, he has uh, really become a very good friend, and I'm and I'm speaking from the heart tonight. I'm not going to joke around about this. He much. He is uh, <laughs> no. He he has become a very good friend, and we have talked uh, through the years uh, about a lot of different things. And I I really look forward to seeing him and uh, having him minister. So this is a very special time for me personally. And I just want to say um, about last night, that was a wonderful, wonderful message. I, I really appreciated it. But let's be realistic. Um, he had 10 points <laughs> and we barely got through the third one. And so he's got seven to get through tonight. I mean, I'm not a pessimist or anything like that, but no, seriously, that was such a blessing last night. And I'm glad you took the time to explain those first three principles about that. So please uh, just come tonight and minister the word. Let let me have a word of prayer and then we'll, we'll get started. Father, thank you for this time together tonight. What a blessing it is to be reminded in reality of what the gospel is not. We're thankful that the gospel is plain and clear, that your son, the Lord Jesus Christ, died on the cross to pay the penalty for our sins. And you accepted that payment when you raised him from the dead. And Father, that it, it is simply by faith, by trust alone in what He has done for us that we can have the gift of eternal life. And what a precious gift that is. And we're thankful that Dr. Hickson and, and Wendy are here with us and to be able to hear from your word the wonderful, wonderful message of salvation in the Lord Jesus Christ. We commit to you this time this evening now. Thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. So I can't promise that I'll make the same deal with you uh, as far as uh, joking, but but, uh, I sure have really enjoyed uh, our interaction as well. I was telling uh, your son-in-law, or your son, actually, right, that a lot of the memes and things that I get come from you, and, um, and then I just reuse them. So if you go back and look at some of my messages at conferences, it's probably mostly your material. I probably owe you royalties uh, for that. But, uh, but anyway, it, it's been a pleasure. So, and also I might mention that not only do I have seven more of the 10 things the gospel is not to get through tonight, but I always, after each time I speak based on the questions and comments, I always go back and in preparing for the next session at a conference, tweak it a little bit. And I added about 30 slides for, <laughs> for tonight to cover some stuff that I thought might be helpful. So anyway, we'll see where it goes. Um, look, I've got nothing else to do tonight, so, you know. <laughs> I'm not in any hurry. I don't know about y'all. But I do want to make a couple quick announcements uh, now that we've kind of gotten some uh, of the material under our belt. Let me just uh, uh, mention a couple of things that uh, 
I'd like to make you aware. First of all, if you're not already on our newsletter list, we'd encourage you to pick up one of these cards from the table. Uh, it just says sign up for our newsletter. We just need your email address, and that way you can kind of stay in touch with Not By Works, and uh, we send out emails when there's new videos or when there's new uh, uh, blogs or articles or just resources that you might want to keep up with, and it's just a, uh, a way to kind of stay in touch. We'd love to have you on that. Now, uh, we do have the two latest books that I mentioned we did during uh, the, sh the lockdown last <clears throat> year, and one of them that's particularly relevant to the topic at hand this weekend is this one. The latest book is Top Ten Reasons uh, Some People Go to Hell and the One Reason No One Ever Has to. And it basically walks through ten chapters of uh, reasons that people might shake their fist at heaven and be angry at God and refuse to believe the gospel, refuse to receive the free gift of eternal life. What is it that keeps people from accepting Christ? And so uh, that's out there. And then the other one is more of a devotional book, uh, Weekly Words of Life. And this one is 52 devotionals, because um, there's 52 weeks in a year, Gary. And, uh, and so uh, the idea is you read one devotional for a week, you know, read it every day. You can read it in literally two or three minutes. It's just two or three simple pages uh, focusing on a passage of Scripture. And just kind of meditate on it, think about it, and, and let the Lord use that in your life uh, during that week. And then I also have mentioned, uh, we've talked quite a bit about this at, with folks back at the table, the new DVD series that's available as also as a download, a Spirit of the Antichrist, The Gathering Cloud of Deception. And this is 18 videos over 14 hours. We just did this uh, this past fall, and it deals with a lot of topics related to Satan's plan to try to take over the world. How many of you believe Satan wants to take over the world? If you, if you believe the Bible, you believe that. Amen. And so he's rapidly working towards ushering in that one world system that uh, the Bible talks about during that seven-year tribulation after the rapture, uh, the time of Jacob's trouble, that overflowing scourge, the great day of the Lord's wrath when the Antichrist rules the world uh, under the power of Satan. And so that this series deals with the setting of the stage for all of that. What do we see happening since John tells us the spirit of the Antichrist is already at work in the world today? What do we see happening all around us that clearly points to a setting of the stage for that one world system? And so that's uh, back there as well. And then, of course, the conference is all about the gospel unplugged. So this is not a new book, but it is a short, simple uh, book that I wrote several years ago that just presents the gospel unplugged. You know, we had uh, uh, lunch today or had some time today with some friends uh, that are uh, really uh, into the music industry. We spent the whole time at lunch talking about different connections with Nashville and stuff that, that he does. And he talked about going to this one place where artists will just sing without all of the production and just their guitar and just, and that's called unplugged, you know. Well, that was kind of the inspiration for the title of this book. It's basically strips away all the footnotes, all the theology. Basically, a lot of the stuff we are talking about the first few sessions uh, tonight, because this is a more in-depth conference, uh, and tomorrow, uh, and it leads up to really what I'm going to do tomorrow night, which is give the gospel in a clear, simple uh, presentation. So this is about 100 pages, easy read. It also makes a great evangelistic tool uh, for people who might not uh, know the Lord. So I wanted to mention that, and that's the Gospel Unplugged. And then one more, which is not my book, uh, but David Fiorazzo, who is a good friend and a host of Stand Up for the Truth Radio, has written a book just came out, just came out called Canceling Christianity. 
And the reason we sell this and promote it is because Not By Works has been a victim of the cancel culture. Uh, YouTube has banned five of our videos, uh, and they've done so because we take a stand uh, for biblical truth. We take a stand for gender. We take a stand for the gospel, the exclusivity of Christ, that no one can come uh, to heaven except through Jesus Christ. And because we also present uh, truth based on scientific facts and research about some of the narratives that are being pressed upon the world today. And they don't like that. If it doesn't comport with their version of the truth, little t, then they're going to cancel it. So we've been a victim of that. And uh, I think it's an excellent book dealing with big tech and censorship and all of that. And so those are back there as well. All right, so with that, let's dive in to uh, 10 false understandings of the gospel. And remember, as a, as a basis for this uh, series that we're doing this conference this weekend, we're looking at foundational passages like Ephesians 2, 8, and 9. For by grace are ye saved through faith, that not of yourselves, it's the gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. And Titus 3, 5, not by works of righteousness, which we have done, but according to his mercy, he saved us by the washing of regeneration and the renewing of the Holy Ghost. And so this verse is the theme verse for Not By Works Ministries when we started it back in 1999. Uh, and, uh, and that's what we're committed to is the clarity, accuracy, and urgency of the gospel message. We talked a lot last night about how the gospel is free. Uh, we are justified, that is declared righteous, freely by His grace through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. Revelation 22 tells us, whosoever will, let him take the water of life freely. So I wanted to take a moment to uh, review. This is one of the charts that I added for tonight because we briefly touched on it last night. Last night we looked at the first two columns. I want to go ahead and put the full chart up. Um, and by the way, any of the charts and diagrams that you see in any of the messages this weekend are uh, available in our chart book. And this is one of them that talks about salvation in the past, present, and future. And so we talked about the past and present last night, justification and sanctification. Justification is being saved from sin's penalty. Sanctification is being saved from sin's power. Justification results in our positional righteousness being in Christ. The sanctification process results in practical righteousness as we conform to the image of Christ and grow in our faith and look more and more like Him so that the new nature within us uh, lives out and bubbles over in our lifestyle and in our heart and in our attitudes and behaviors and so forth. And when the old man rears his ugly head, when we cater to the flesh, when we walk not in the spirit but in the flesh, uh, we're going to look very much like an unbeliever. And that's very important to understand that because a lot of the confusion today over the gospel stems from a failure to differentiate between uh, these first two columns, salvation and discipleship, which again are not the same thing. The goal is to be saved and be a disciple of our Lord. The goal is to be saved and to follow the Lord faithfully. But not every believer does. And the scriptures, as we looked at last night, give us examples of someone who was a believer but not a disciple and also of disciples who are not a believer. And so, again, a person might uh, uh, decide on a whim uh, to, that they're going to start following the teachings of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, who was a historical figure that lived in the first century. And they might think, you know, he's, got, he's a great prophet. He's got some good teachings. He's got some good advice. I, from now on, I'm going to be a disciple of Jesus. I'm going to follow him. But they might not have any idea that he died and rose again for their sins. They may never have placed their faith in him and him alone as the only one who can forgive sin and give eternal life. So they're a disciple, 
but they're by no means uh, a believer. So, but the third column here is the one I didn't put up last week, although I did mention it, and that's glorification, salvation in the future, which is when we are saved finally from sin's very presence. And this we might call perfect righteousness. This is when uh, we leave the flesh, we have our glorified bodies, and no longer is sin an issue. And uh, what a day that will be. Amen. And so that happens in eternity. We're going to be talking tomorrow during the worship hour about uh, what I'm uh, calling a grace face-to-face. When we leave this body, leave this earth, and we see our Lord face-to-face and, and how, what, what all that's going to look like and talk about uh, what heaven is going to be uh, like. And so but one of the key features of that time will be that sin shall be uh, no more. So we look forward to that time. So again, we talked about how our practice in life, if we zoom in on just the first two columns, should reflect our position in Christ. But it doesn't always do that. But it should. And when it doesn't, there are consequences for that. Whom the Lord loves, He disciplines. And there are practical temporal consequences as well. But we need to be careful about hastily concluding that someone whose practical outgrowth and life and behavior does not represent Christlikeness, hastily concluding that that person must not be saved. Uh, They might not be saved. Not suggesting that everybody who says they're saved is saved. What I am saying is that if someone is not saved, it's not because of their behavior. It's because they've never placed their faith in Jesus Christ and Him alone for salvation. So last night we got through uh, three, the first three, uh, and we said the gospel is not a commitment. The gospel is not a contract, and the gospel is not giving something to the Lord. Before we get to number four... Uh, I want to take a moment to follow up on something we talked a lot about during our uh, session last night, uh, during the Q&A and also afterwards, and kind of sets the stage for these next several that I'm going to be uh, giving you. And I think it gives, will give some clarity to the next uh, few items on the list. So one reason that there's so much confusion over the gospel is that we all use the same terms, but we do so to mean something completely different. So the big issue here is we believe that the biblical term faith means biblical, biblically means confidence and assurance. That's what it means. If you look it up, it's the Greek word pistuo is the noun to believe or I believe and the, the ver, uh, there's the verb and the noun is pistis, faith. If you look that up in any Greek lexicon, that's what you're going to find. To have faith To believe, to trust, means to have confidence or assurance. It's pretty simple. We use the term the same way in English, and nothing complex about it. But what happened is several hundred years ago, coming out of the Protestant Reformation, the Reformers, who understandably had been influenced by centuries of works-based sacramentalism and this notion of, you know, paying indulgences to get into heaven and doing works to get into heaven under Roman Catholic dominance had broken away from that, but they were, you know, a product of the culture in which they lived, and it was hard for them to leave the notion of works entirely behind, even though, you know, we're thankful for Luther and nailing his 95 theses to the wall, and we're thankful for what that did for the body of Christ at large, uh, breaking free uh, from the state church. Uh, nevertheless, like all movements, that it wasn't perfect, and it, in, in their in their attempt to disassociate with Roman Catholicism, they carried some baggage with them. And part of that was, and early on, they redefined faith. And so according to Calvinist teaching, faith is not confidence or assurance, it's allegiance 
and obedience. And I'm going to take the time, because I think it's important, to walk you through some quotes of of modern-day contemporary Calvinists that prove this is exactly what they mean uh, by faith. So they have created this term spurious faith. Uh, By the way, way, that's a a Olin Mills photography studio picture of uh, John Calvin. that's what he looked like. Um, but anyway, they've created this notion of spurious faith, because since they redefined faith to mean allegiance and obedience, and again, I'll prove that here in a moment, uh, then if your faith lacks obedience, if you're doing something that's not allegiant to the Lordship of Christ, then your faith can't be real. It's not real faith. And it's what they called spurious faith. And so, in order to understand the Calvinist notion of spurious faith, we've got to really drill down into a a major issue in this debate over the nature of the gospel. You know, uh, what we're suggesting is the gospel is totally free. Jesus paid it all. You simply receive it by faith. And more than 160 times, the New Testament conditions eternal life upon faith alone and Christ alone. Uh, But Calvinists have a little bit different take on it. And those who kind of follow that teaching. A lot of people believe this. They don't even know that it's Calvinistic in its origin. Uh, But whether they realize it or not, they're espousing a Calvinist uh, teaching. So it all comes down to, you know, this uh, definition of faith. So the key question that we need to answer is, is it the kind of faith that saves me? Or is it the object of my faith? we say that another way, is it the quality of our faith that saves us, or is it having the right object? Or, in other words, do I have to believe the gospel a certain way, promising allegiance and obedience, or is it enough just to believe the good news that Jesus Christ died for our sins and rose from the dead? If I trust Christ for eternal salvation, knowing that He alone paid my sin debt, He alone has the authority to give life. Uh, Is that enough? Or does my faith also have to include some type of pledge or promise to result in salvation? So Calvinists teach that faith is like a three-legged stool. This is their illustration. This is their definition. You can find it across the board in any of the Reformed uh, scholars today. Uh, They suggest that faith, if it's real, has to have all three components. And they get this, again, going back to the Reformation, from the Latin uh, words. The first one is the word notitia. And that's a Latin word that just means uh, information, um, knowledge. Um, The idea here is that before you can believe something, you must understand it. Well, I have no problem with that, and we should not have a problem with that. It goes without saying that in order to believe something, you have to understand it. You have to comprehend it. If I were to stand up here and uh, speak uh, either some gibberish or speak in some uh, foreign language that nobody in the room speaks, and and I were to make this uh, proclamation, uh, this statement, this propositional statement of truth, and then I were to, at the conclusion of it, speaking English, I were to say to you, so do you believe that? You'd all look at me like I was nuts, and you'd say, I have no idea what you're talking about. I couldn't understand a word of what you said, right? So it's, it's implicit within faith that before you can believe something, you must understand it. So I don't have much of a problem with this 
leg of the stool, if you will. I just think it's unnecessary. I think it goes without saying, if you have to believe something to be saved, you have to understand what you're believing, right? Uh, so, but nevertheless, that's their first leg. The second one, uh, which is really the only leg in our, uh, in our uh, single-legged stool, if you want to call it that, is a census, which just means confidence or assurance. Sound familiar? That's right, because it's the Latin word for faith, basically. And so we believe that having understood something, you, you then must believe it. That's the idea. But they add, and this is the rub, they add a third leg, which is fiducia. And they use this term uh, pervasively throughout their writings, um, and it's the idea that you must not only believe it, you, know, you must not only understand it and believe it, you must pledge to obey it. And unless your faith, when you believed in Jesus Christ for salvation, has all three of these components at that moment that you trusted Him, your faith is spurious. So this is their uh, notion of saving faith. Saving faith to a Calvinist involves comprehending the facts of the gospel, assenting to the truthfulness of them, believing them, in other words, and finally, willfully submitting to the demands of the gospel, uh, promising to obey Christ and fully surrender to the authority of the demands of Christ. That's what it takes to be saved. So if you lack any of you know this 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 last point here if you're if your promise to Christ wanes if you are not fully surrendering to him at points in your life then in their mind it it brings up a question is your faith spurious maybe you weren't really saved your that kind of faith isn't going to save you at all right so now let me give you several quotes from several uh, contemporary uh, reformed scholars and again I mentioned this last night but it bears repeating we're not personally attacking people who disagree. I'm just trying to explain to you that there is a substantive disagreement, and it's in a very important issue, and that is the gospel. And so I'm not saying I, that these are mean people or they're ugly or we hate them. We're just saying we have an honest disagreement about something very important. Okay, and so that's the reason I mentioned names. I wouldn't do this, you know, anywhere or any place that I speak. But some conferences where I feel like it's a biblically uh, astute group and it's an, and it's an appropriate audience, I, I feel like it's necessary to do this. So, for example, MacArthur says, "quote Modern popular theology tends to recognize notitia and often a census, but eliminates fiducia." Notice he says, faith is not true faith if it lacks this attitude of surrender to Christ's authority. If you're not willing to surrender to Christ's authority, then you're not saved. Go back to what we talked about last night. Suddenly faith becomes this quid pro quo, this bilateral contract, right? Uh, he goes on to say, is it enough to know and understand and assent to the facts of the gospel, even holding the inward convictions that these truths apply to me personally, and yet never shun sin or submit to the Lord Jesus? A person who holds that kind of belief guaranteed eternal life? And he says no. So notice here what I'm emphasizing is to them it's the kind of belief that saves, not the object. So in a Calvinist scheme, you could have two people for the sake of the illustration, we'll assume they're both lost. The, both of them come to a point where they place their faith in Jesus Christ and Him alone as the Son of God who died and rose again to pay their personal penalty for sin, and they're trusting Him and only Him to forgive their sin and give them eternal life. And in a Calvinist scheme, 
conceivably one would go to heaven and one would not. Because one of them might not have also added the component of fiducia, which is to promise to obey and pledge to follow and surrender my all to him and all of these other uh, ideas. Uh, so whereas we believe the Bible is, is very plainly clear that it's simply trusting in Jesus Christ and him alone. It's the object of our faith that saves. R.C. Sproul put it this way, speaking of this three-legged stool, the third act is fiducial by which we judge the gospel to be not only true, but also most worthy of our love and desire. So when you placed your faith in Jesus Christ to rescue you from the penalty of sin, you must also have pledged uh, your love and desire for him at that moment. If you didn't, you don't have fiducia. Or J.I. Packer, who said, Faith is a whole-souled response involving mind, heart, will, and affections. But if good works, all of these quotes and parentheses in here are directly from his quote. But if good works, activities of serving God and others, do not follow from our profession of faith, we are as yet believing only from the head, not from the heart. In other words, Packer says, justifying faith, fiducia, there's that word again, is not yet ours. You have to have fiducia if you're going to get to heaven. What is fiducia? A pledge or promise to obey the Lord. So the implications of this are pretty profound, and this leads us to the fifth point of Calvinism. And I know some of you have seen our video series on uh, uh, why I'm not a Calvinist, or what is Calvinism, and is it biblical, I think we called it. And so these quotes that I'm giving you now are taken from that series, but it's so important to lay this foundation before we get into the next few uh, false gospels that I want to uh, present. But this erroneous doctrine of perseverance of the saints has tragic consequences because what happens is if you some at some point in your Christian walk get away from the Lord, that proves your faith wasn't real because according to Calvinism, real faith that has fiducia is guaranteed to walk with the Lord till you die. And if at any point you're not walking with the Lord, they can conclude based on their theology, well, you didn't have real, your faith was just spurious. You need to try again. And this time be more committed, be more serious, be more uh, obedient, right? So for example, Piper put it this way, there is no doubt that Jesus saw some measure of real lived out obedience to the will of God as necessary for final salvation. I mean, I don't know how you can parse that and not come up with anything other than work salvation. If, 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 if it is necessary for me to have final salvation, meaning ending up in heaven, to have real lived out obedience to the will of God, that's the exact opposite of what the Bible teaches. Paul says, whatever is of works is not of grace, and whatever is of grace is not of works. You know, you can't mix the two. Uh, R.C. Sproul said, we are justified by faith alone, but justifying faith is never found alone. <laughs> Now, that, that'll preach, <laughs> and, you know, especially young people that are really into Reformed theology will just say a hearty amen, and yeah, you told them, you got them. No, you didn't. It makes no sense. It's complete nonsense. It's a, it's a contradiction in terms. How can you say you're justified by faith alone, but justifying faith is never alone, right? He says, true faith is always accompanied by non-saving, but absolutely necessary works, if they're absolutely necessary, they're saving. <laughs> because if you don't have them, you're not going to heaven, according to Reformed theology. He says, if there are no good works, there is no true faith. 
Now, again, you need to understand why they say that and why they can say, well, no, we don't teach works-based salvation. We teach sola fide, faith alone. The reason they can say that is they're wrapping up this good works, as Sproul says here, in the definition of faith. So when they say faith alone, you're saved by faith alone, they mean you're saved by faith alone and good works. <laughs> and we, say, we mean, no, you're just saved by faith alone, right? Uh, true faith is always accompanied by non-saving but absolutely necessary works. I mean, how can the both be true at the same time, right? Wayne Grudem says the perseverance of the saints means that all those who are truly born again will persevere as Christians until the end of their lives and that only those who persevere until the end have been truly born again. Again, you don't know if you're going to heaven or not. We believe the Bible teaches you can know from the moment you place your faith in Jesus Christ that you're heaven bound. That at that moment your identity changes. You are now a child of God, sealed with the Holy Spirit of promise. And nothing that you can do after that point in time can undo the spiritual DNA that is now yours in Christ. To a Reformed theologian, you, you have to wait till you persevere into the end to know for sure. In fact, even Sproul uh, said, of course, he's with the Lord now. He said when he was living that he can only be 99% sure uh, that he's going to heaven. Because in his theology, he must allow for the possibility, remote though it may be, that on his deathbed or late in life, he might depart from the Lord. And if he did, in his theology, that would prove he was never really saved. <laughs> So I give him credit for at least being intellectually honest. He's one of the few Reformed guys to admit that. Um, but it destroy, this doctrine of perseverance of the saints destroys any possibility for eternal security. I remember sitting across the breakfast table from a guy one time who held this view. And I said, um, are you certain you're going to heaven? He said, absolutely. I believe in eternal security. I'm absolutely certain I'm going to heaven someday. And uh, I said, but you believe in the doctrine of the perseverance of the saints? He said, oh, yeah, absolutely. I said, uh, so let me ask you, um, uh, can you tell the future? And he kind of chuckled. Well, no, what do you mean? I said, well, how do you know three months from now or let's say 10 years from now? Something might happen in your life that shakes your world. Maybe you get out of the Word of God. Maybe you stop fellowshipping with Bible-believing church fellowship. Something happens that somehow impacts your walk with the Lord and you're departing from the faith. I mean, it happens all the time, sadly, right? The Christian highways are littered with shipwrecked lives of believers, men and women who were one point strong in their faith, but departed from the Lord. So unless you can tell the future, you can't sit here in the present and guarantee that you're going to be in heaven if you hold this view. He didn't, he didn't buy my argument, but that's all right. Uh, R.C. Sproul said, those who are genuinely saved are those who prove themselves to be doers of the word. I mean, that's the simplest statement of the Reformed view of the gospel right there. MacArthur put it this way, the Reformer spoke of the perseverance of the saints. The point is not that God guarantees heaven to everyone who professes faith in Christ. That's not the point. Let me say that again. MacArthur, it's not the point that God guarantees heaven to everyone who professes faith in Christ, but rather that those whose faith is genuine, see how the emphasis shifts back on you? And he's already defined, as we showed, how you know your faith is genuine. It's because it produces fiducia. Uh, I mean, it, based on fiducia, produces good works. But he says, rather, those whose faith is genuine will never totally or finally fall away from Christ. Now, even if that were true, which it's not, it's so ambiguous, I'm, I'm left wanting more. 
I'd like to know the definition for totally or finally. I mean, first of all, those are two different words. I'm sure he's using them as sort of an emphasis semantically as synonyms, but how do I know if I've totally fallen? What if I uh, get away from the Lord and, and I'm backslidden for a year? Have I reached the point of no return? Ten years. And how many people can we think of and, or have heard stories about who were believers, faithful, on fire for the Lord, but walked away from the Lord, and then years later, the Spirit of God finally brought them back into right fellowship with the Lord. And I'm here to tell you, had they died in the midst of their backslidden state, they'd be in heaven today. Because our home in heaven is not secured based upon our willingness to obey and follow the Lord. It's based upon the promise of Jesus who said, I give you, present tense, eternal life and you shall never perish, John 10, 28. So we don't get eternal life when we die. We get eternal life when we believe the gospel, right? So uh, again, MacArthur says, those who do not display characteristics of the new nature don't have it. They were never truly born again. Well, I don't know about you. Um, but the, the sin is, is never, can we agree on that? We can never sin and then say, well, you know, that was just that Holy Spirit within me acting up again. That's that new nature manifesting himself. Sin is never sourced in the new nature. So having established that, let me ask another question. I'm going to ask for a show of hands. How many of you here tonight? Have, let's just say, how many of you here tonight have sinned in the last 48 hours? Raise your hand. Okay, elders, you want to get a piece of paper? And... <laughs> of course we have. Of course we have. Why? Because, you know, we're still struggling with that battle that Galatians 5 talks about between the flesh and the spirit. The flesh thus against the spirit, the spirit against the flesh, and the two are contrary to one another. Right? Paul describes this in Romans 7 when, when he says, you know, the things that I know I should do, I don't do. The things that I know I shouldn't do, I do. Oh, wretched man that I am. Now, of course, Reformed theologians, Calvinists, don't take Romans 7 that way. They believe Romans 7, Paul is describing his life before he got saved because no Christian would ever characterize his life that way. So they, they take Romans 7 completely differently. Do the same thing with 1 Corinthians 3, the natural, spiritual, and carnal. You, know, you look up in the MacArthur Study Bible or MacArthur's commentaries, he still only sees two people there, saved and unsaved. There's no category of a carnal Christian. If you're carnal, you're unsaved, right? That's his interpretation of that passage. Um, so, you know, we've established that sin is never sourced in the new nature. We've established that we're all a bunch of sinners in here, Matt. Um, so the question then is, when we sin, are we, are we displaying characteristics of the new nature or the old nature? The old nature. Well, then how do we know if we're ever truly born again? Right? How much is too much? How much sin is too much to prove that my faith was spurious, I didn't do it the right way? Or... How long can I persist in, you know, that sin? How much good works do I have to do, right? Uh, he goes on to say, faith obeys, unbelief rebels. The fruit of one's life reveals whether that person is a believer or unbeliever. There's no middle ground. Well, I disagree. Um, he goes on, where there is no works, we must assume no faith exists either. No, we don't have to assume that. 
I assume because I know the church, I know your leadership, and I know many of you, and I've talked to many of you, that you've trusted in Jesus Christ and Him alone for salvation, and on the authority of Scripture based on your own testimony, I assume you're a believer. Um, I don't look at your works to determine whether you're a believer. I look at your testimony. So with that said, and we'll go through these fairly quickly now, having laid the foundation, the next thing we need to understand is that the gospel is not repenting of your sin. Now, I know that's a big sticky wicket, and we, 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 you know, I get emails all the time when I teach about this because it's so contrary to what we've been taught. But I challenge you, we've got to be willing to be biblicist above all else, and, and unless we can demonstrate from Scripture... We've got to be willing to strip that away, no matter how sacred it was in our upbringing, you know. But most gospel presentations involve two steps, repent of your sin and believe. Largest denomination in America in their faith and message, the Baptist faith and message of the Southern Baptist Convention lists two steps. How you can say it? Repent and believe, right? But I'm here to tell you that any gospel presentation, uh, all gospel presentations should use the word believe or trust. That's the biblical term. But anyone that puts the word and before that or after that, you can just dismiss it right there. It's not believe and anything else. It's not something and believe. It's believe, right, in one step. Uh, so let's just take a moment to talk about this. Uh, and I know you've probably studied this before, so I, I, I don't want to camp out here for too long. But in the Bible... Uh, there are two words that are related to the word repent. Uh, the first one is the verb metanoeo, uh, which is used 34 times in the Greek New Testament. 34 times. It's actually a compound word etymologically, meta uh, meaning again, and naeo meaning I think. So it became, uh, you know, it meant to think again or to change one's mind. And so. Like all words, uh, words have to be defined not by a lexicon, but in context. Um, whenever you see the word metanoeo, or in English translation, repent, you must ask, repent about what? Change your mind about what? Right? And I always like to point out that in the Greek translation of the Old Testament, which happened 285 years before Christ was born, roughly, um, they talk, they use this word and apply it to God when talking about how God changed his mind. Now, setting aside for the moment the theology of what does that mean, we can certainly all agree that it does not mean God was sinning and needed to stop sinning, right? So the point is, metaneo just means change the mind. It does not mean stop sinning. Uh, now, if you say, repent of your sin, then you're talking about a change of mind about your sin, right? Uh, and the Bible never uses that phrase as a requirement for eternal salvation. But anyway, the verb is used 34 times and just means to change your mind. Um, one lexicon actually translates it that way, to change the way one thinks, uh, to change the way one thinks. So again, you should always ask, change your mind about uh, what? Uh, Change your mind about your behavior, about your actions, about your attitude, about your sin, about your emotion. What are you supposed to change your mind about in the context? Change my mind about uh, what? Uh, so, uh, again, the, uh, the verb is used 34 times, meaning to change the mind. The noun uh, 
is used 22 times. Metanoia, uh, it's, it's just a variant form of the verb, meaning a change of mind, or translated in English, repentance, a change of mind. So let's do some quick math. We've got 34 times metanoeo, and then we've got, you know, 22 times the noun, metanoia, a combined total of 56 times that these two words are used in the entire New Testament. At the back of my book, Getting the Gospel Wrong, which I know some of you have read, I have an appendix that lists every one of these occurrences, all 56, in context, and, it's, and I explain in context what it's changing your mind about, right? And the bottom line is there are comparatively few passages in the entire New Testament that even use the, one of these two words in the context of eternal salvation. And the ones that do are simply talking about a change of mind about God. It's an overarching phrase to talk about the moment you placed your faith in Jesus. In other words, every person who gets saved, you could argue, has had a change of mind. They used to think they could save themselves. They used to think they didn't need a Savior. They used to think uh, the seven sacraments of Catholicism saved them. They used to think Allah was God. You know, they, in some sense, by coming to understand and believe the gospel of the Bible, the good news about salvation through Christ, they have experienced a change of mind. But that in no way should ever be taken to mean they've done a U-turn or they've forsaken their sin or changed, you know, all their ways. Or in most times when you see this phrase, repent of sins and believe, it actually is accompanied in gospel tracts and presentations by this diagram of a U-turn. Like if you're going to go to heaven, you got to stop going that way and you better turn it around, buddy, and come to Christ and believe in him. And the, the, the fact of the matter is, the, the call of salvation is a universal call. Come one, come all, freely take of the water of life. Jesus paid the penalty for all. You simply receive it. And you don't have to take any other action than that in order to prepare to be saved. You don't have to get cleaned up to take a bath, in other words, right? And I'm sure you've heard that before. So that's what we mean by repentance by comparison to those 56 times as i've mentioned several times more than 160 times the new testament conditions eternal life upon faith alone in christ alone um, so it, it you know one of the principles of hermeneutics that if you uh, were to take a bible study methods class from me that we would hit pretty hard is you always interpret the obscure in light of the clear so when we come across a few passages that use repentance, never says repentance of sin or repent of sins, but just repentance. Uh, for example, God is not willing that any should perish, 2 Peter 3, 9, but that all come to repentance. Absolutely. God wants everybody to change their mind about Christ and trust in Him and Him alone for salvation. No question about it. But it doesn't say turn from your sins to be saved. And so people will throw these verses out there. Uh, as if, oh, see, you, you, this is what you have to do to be saved. And if you look at the context, that's not what it's saying uh, at all. So when it comes to eternal salvation, repentance is limited to a change of mind about Christ or something related to that. So the gospel is not uh, repenting uh, of your sins. Uh, and then number five, 
On a related note, the gospel is not surrendering to Jesus as Lord and Master. Now, we already talked about this at the opening when I was giving you all the dis discussion about uh, spurious faith and their meaning of faith with fiducia being necessary. And fiducia just means a surrendering or a pledge or a promise to obey God. But I thought I would list it explicitly here. And then I'm going to give you some quotes according to a lot of the uh, reform scholars, many of whom I quoted already uh, tonight. These are direct quotes from some of their uh, teachings. Eternal salvation, they say, requires placing of oneself totally in submission to the Lord Jesus Christ. It, it requires a willful obedience in turning from sin. That's their definition of repentance. It requires yielding to Christ's authority. It requires, quote, a purposeful decision to forsake all unrighteousness and pursue righteousness instead. I mean, think about the implications of that one. In order for you to receive the gift, which, of course, as we've already established, it's not really a gift if you're having to do something to get it. But in order for you to receive entrance into heaven, eternal life, you've got to forsake all unrighteousness. How is that even possible? All right. Uh, and how do you quantify that? So we completely disagree with these statements because we believe the Bible teaches salvation is a free gift. And we believe that these types of things really deal with discipleship. So again, it goes back to confusing those two columns, first tense salvation with second tense salvation, justification with sanctification. Uh, it's absolutely true. Let's see if I can get the X off of there. Yeah, it's absolutely true that as a believer, you and I every day ought to submit to the Lord Jesus Christ. If He's calling you to do something, you should do it. You don't want to be disobedient to the Lord. To do so would be to act contrary to your nature. Right? Um, if you're sinning, I'm here to tell you, you ought to turn from your sin as a believer. Frankly, as an unbeliever too. Because sin is an equal opportunity killer. It doesn't care whether you're a believer or not. Sin ultimately leads to death. If an unbeliever sins and dies, he'll go to hell or she'll go to hell. If a believer sins and dies, he'll go to heaven or she'll go to heaven. If you have two people up here, and let's say for the illustration, we know that one's a believer and we know the other's not a believer, and they both uh, go down the horrific path of drug use. They get caught up in drug abuse and they're both doing heroin or fentanyl or something. Is, is the believer somehow less likely to overdose? No. Sin is an equal opportunity killer. Sin, when it's full grown, brings forth death. Proverbs is replete with statements reminding us that the way of the fool leads to a hastened death. <laughs> and the way of righteous leads to prolonged life. Now, there are exceptions to that. We live in a fallen world of injustice, and sometimes godly saints tragically die young. That's part of the curse of sin that, that we don't understand, and it, it's not fair, but God will make all things new and make all things fair one day. But we don't want to base our life on the exceptions. Fact of the matter is, you know, if you are fooling around with sin, that's dangerous, and if you don't stop, it could ultimately lead, John says, there's sin that leads to death. It could ultimately lead to swift physical consequences. Um, the fact that some people, dirty, rotten, filthy sinners, live to a ripe old age, I, I don't understand it. This, the fact that some innocent children die in a car accident, I don't understand it. But those are the exceptions. The principle is, still stands. You know, if, if you jump off of a 10-story building, you're probably going to die. The fact that, you know, the Guinness Book of World Records might list some guy that jumped off a 20-foot building and survived with several broken bones doesn't mean you should go jumping off buildings, right? 
so there are exceptions. But the fact of the matter is, sin is bad. It has consequences. And so that's what I mean by, frankly, regardless of whether you're a believer or not, you really shouldn't sin. But if you're an unbeliever and you stop sinning, that's not going to save you. <laughs> because nobody gets saved by turning their life around. There are going to be a lot of moral people in hell. Because it's not what you do that matters, it's what's in your heart. Have you trusted in Christ and Him alone for salvation? Uh, so, you know, again, it comes down to confusing a lot of these passages. For example, in Matthew 16, uh, a lot of people take this incorrectly as a call to eternal salvation. It's not. It's a call to discipleship, to deny yourself, take up your cross and follow me. That's not how you get to heaven. That's how believers should, should live their lives as they wait until they're in heaven someday. It's, about, it's called discipleship. Um, Luke says the same thing, but adds the word daily. Now, if we got to die to ourselves daily and follow Christ daily as a condition for eternal life, well, that adds a whole new twist, right? Because let's face it, there are seasons of life where we might go more than a day kind of out of fellowship with the Lord, maybe not praying like we should, having bitter thoughts, or um, just not in, in, in fellowship with Him. So uh, that, again, is discipleship. So we could go on and on. Uh, in Luke 14, count the cost. You know, that's, what another, that's another passage that a lot of these Calvinist scholars will use. You know, if you want to get saved, you've got to count the cost. I did, and Jesus paid all of it, right? Jesus paid it all. Um, nothing in my hand I bring simply uh, to the cross cycling. By the way, someone told me at the break, they, if, if you read some more of Augustus Toplady's uh, writings, that he was a, a real Reformed scholar, so I don't know. Now I'm, I'm second-guessing that hymn. It makes me so sad. But, you know, I mean, let's face it, even a broken clock's right twice a day. So, you know, uh, maybe he got it right on that hymn. Uh, anyway, uh, same thing, uh, you know, forsake all that you have. That's discipleship. That's not salvation. Jesus neither needs nor requires your allegiance as a prerequisite for receiving eternal life. And then, uh, and you saw this come through in one of the quotes I gave you earlier. I forget which one it was. Um, but anyway, Calvinists love to, because they believe in faith and spurious faith, real faith, they say, has fiducia. If it doesn't have fiducia, it's spurious faith. They have taken to contrasting what they call head faith versus heart faith. And I want to really challenge you to avoid using that distinction because it's not where you believe that saves you, it's what you believe. And in Scripture, the heart and the head are, the heart and the mind are used interchangeably. So a lot of times Calvinists will say, well, he believed it up here, but he didn't believe it down here. So he was, you know, 16 inches from heaven. You know, they'll make statements like that. Um, with the distance from your brain to your heart, supposedly, or something like that. So, uh, but what they're really meaning by that is he believed the gospel, but he didn't promise and pledge to obey the gospel, so he's not going to heaven. And that's, that's wrong. And so we have lots of examples in uh, Scripture. For example, Matthew 9, 4, Wherefore, think ye evil in your hearts. Oh, wait a minute, I thought you think with your mind and you believe with your heart, right? See, they think noticia, understanding comes up here, but real fiducia comes from the heart. And that's why they make that distinction. Not true. Uh, Proverbs, as a man, for as he thinketh in his heart, so is he, right? Thinketh in his heart. Uh, James 4, 8, purify your hearts, you double-minded, right? See the synonymous parallelism there? Uh, or Philippians 4, 7, the peace of God, which passeth all understanding, shall keep your hearts and minds. 
right? It's just the two words meaning the same thing. So again, it's not where or how you believe that saves you. It is what you believe that saves you. Another great hymn, which I will, having keeping the conversation at dinner in the forefront of my mind, approach now with great trepidation, is by uh, Eliza Edmonds Hewitt. And I actually quote this at the beginning in the preface uh, or the front matter of my book, Top Ten Reasons. But I love uh, this uh, great hymn, My faith has found a resting place, not in device nor creed. I trust the ever-living one, his wounds for me shall plead. I need no other argument. I need no other plea. It is enough that Jesus died and that he died for me. Enough for me that Jesus saves. This ends my fear and doubt. A sinful soul, I come to him. He'll never cast me out. My heart is leaning on the word, the written word of God. Salvation by my Savior's name. Salvation through his blood. My great physician heals the sick, the lost he came to save. For me, his precious blood he shed. For me, his life he gave. I need no other argument. I need no other plea. It is enough that Jesus died and that he died for me. Number six, the gospel is not inviting or asking Jesus into your heart. The problem with this language is, first of all, it's never found in Scripture. Secondly, it confuses the result of believing in Jesus Christ with the means of getting eternal life. We know that when you believe in Jesus Christ, according to the New Testament, Christ takes up residence in your heart. For example, Ephesians 3.17, that Christ may dwell in your hearts. How? By asking Him? No, by faith, right? So Christ being in our hearts is the result of believing the gospel, not the means. So a lot of times, and this, by the way, I researched this for my book, Getting the Gospel Wrong, and, and it, the earliest you can find this notion of asking or inviting Jesus into your heart is around the turn of the 20th century, and it seems to have emanated, uh, actually goes back even to the 1880s, it seems to have emanated within the Baptist circles, and you see it starting to uh, kind of prop up in hymn, some of the hymns that are writing, you know, come into my heart, come into my heart, Lord Jesus, you know, and you turn the gospel into, instead of receiving by faith the gift of eternal life, asking Jesus to come in. The problem is the offer's already been made, right? Uh, and so it, it creates this tautology, this repetition, this endless cycle. You know, if, if in order to receive eternal life, you've got to ask for eternal life, you know, so I go to Matt, back, you know, going back to our illustration last night, I have a gift for Matt, and I'm offering the gift, and he says, great, can I have the gift? And I'm like, I just said you can have the gift. And he's trying to receive it, so he receives it by asking for the gift. And it just it's endless. You don't get the gift by asking for the gift. The gift has already been offered. Um, and so the, the offer is universal. Uh, Whosoever will, let him come drink of the water of life freely. So again, it confuses uh, this notion of asking Jesus into your heart confuses the idea of the result of faith with the means of getting eternal life. I hope that makes sense. Number seven, the gospel is not praying a prayer. The gospel is not praying a prayer. You know, you see lots of references to the sinner's prayer. I've even seen gospel tracts that label it that. But, you know, they, they, a lot of gospel tracts uh, do a great job of setting the stage, you know, I call them like Dallas Cowboys tracks because they march down to the field, get to the one-yard line, and then fumble the ball, you know. That's just what they do. And so a lot of gospel tracks explain the problem. You're a sinner. You need a Savior. They explain the remedy. Jesus Christ, the Son of God, came to earth, lived a perfect, holy, sinless life, died and rose again for your sins. 
and they say he's, you know, he's offering this gift. And then that's when you've got people on the edge of their seats, the Spirit of God working on them, and they're saying, great, I'm convinced I need a Savior. What do I do next? And then they're all over the map. Invite Jesus into your heart. Turn from your sins. Forsake all. Make, commit your life to Him. You know, all of these things we've talked about so far. And one of them that's a mistake is if you'll just repeat the sinner's prayer, you'll go to heaven. Now, I want to be clear that while the Bible never says you have to pray to be saved, of course, as we've said, it does say you have to believe to be saved more than 160 times. And often, as we express faith in the Lord Jesus and what He's done for us in order to receive the gift of eternal life, we do so in, in prayer. In fact, you could, you could argue that anytime you're communicating with the Lord, it's de facto prayer, right? So I'm not saying that it's wrong to pray. We often mark the moment of faith by saying, Lord Jesus, I'm placing my faith in you today. I know I'm a sinner. I'm trusting in you to forgive my sin and give me the gift of eternal life. That's fine. But we just want to make sure that it's not formulaic or that we're not suggesting that you've got to repeat some particular chant in order to get to heaven. And so by crystallizing, as many have done, this as the sinner's prayer and suggesting you've got to pray the sinner's prayer to be saved, I think we are really creating some uh, confusion. It's all about faith. Jesus said, Verily, verily, I say unto you, he that believeth on me hath everlasting life. We're never told you have to pray to be saved. Uh, number eight, the gospel is not forsaking your old ways. We've kind of talked about this one with this notion of spurious faith and fiducia and what faith supposedly really means, which is forsaking all ungodliness and so forth, and this idea of a U-turn. Uh, but that makes, again, works the requirement. And as I quoted earlier, if it's by grace, then it's no more of works. Otherwise, grace is no more grace. But if it be of works, then it's no more grace. Otherwise, work is no more uh, work. So, in other words, uh, grace and works don't mix, right? It's not partly by grace and partly by works. Romans 4, Paul put it this way, Now to him that worketh is the reward not reckoned of grace, but of debt. <laughs> the ironic thing is the very thing that people think will save them actually only digs the hole deeper, right? It creates more debt. He goes on in the next verse to say, But to him that worketh not, but believeth on him that justifieth the ungodly, his faith is counted for righteousness, right? So faith is the key, not works. Uh, number nine, the gospel is not public profession. The gospel is not public profession. You see this a lot. I've been uh, at uh, big conferences where Speakers will get up and come to the moment where they're presenting the gospel, and it's usually a terrible presentation, but then even worse, they say, you know, now listen, Jesus went to the cross for you. If you're not willing to slip out of that chair or slip out of that pew and come to the altar, you know, you can't be saved, you know. And so people, you got flooding the aisle in that emotional moment thinking uh, they're going to be saved. Now, I, I had intended uh, to take a moment to deal with the key passage that people use to support this false gospel uh, possession. But I think for the sake of time, I'll save that and just suggest if you want to deal with Romans 10, I've got a, a DVD that deals with this uh, complete exposition of Romans 9, 10, and 11, particularly with Romans 10, 9, and 10. But the point, I'll just kind of summarize it for you. Uh, nowhere does Scripture 
condition entrance into heaven upon some kind of public confession or display of allegiance. First of all, if it did, mute people couldn't go to heaven. Um, and secondly, neither could a guy on a desert island, right? Um, so, I mean, you imagine that. You're on a desert island and a gospel track washes up in a bottle and you read it. The Spirit of God convicts you of sin, righteousness, and judgment. You realize, I need to trust in Christ. I'm trusting in Christ. Now, if I can just find someone to publicly confess to, I'm in. But you're sunk. You're going to die and go to hell because you didn't find anyone to publicly confess to, right? Um, but of course, that's not required. But the, the key to understanding Romans 10, and I just want to challenge you to kind of go back and read that in context, but Romans 9 through 11 are all about Israel. Paul is essentially in his flow of thought in the letter answering the question, what about Israel? Has God forsaken them? Has He done with them? Has he, has he cast them aside forever? And the answer is a resounding no. They are still going to receive their kingdom. The deliverer is going to come out of Zion. And Paul, Paul quotes throughout that section several Old Testament kingdom and second coming passages to prove that Israel is going to get their kingdom. But what he says in chapter 10 is that before the nation of Israel can be delivered into the kingdom, each Jew must individually, like every human being, first believe the gospel to be declared righteous. So with the heart, you believe and are justified. With the mouth, national Israel will confess, will call on the name of the Lord. Romans 10.13 is quoting Joel 2.32, which is a second coming passage. I mean, nobody gets saved by calling on the name of the Lord, right? How many people in the moment of tragedy or crisis have cried out, Oh my God! And they're in heaven because they cried that out? No. They, unless they've trusted in Christ and Him alone for salvation, they're not. Uh, faith alone is the only means of salvation. So you gotta, whenever the New Testament quotes an Old Testament passage, look up the Old Testament passage because that's very helpful in understanding it. And in Joel 2, it's all about Christ coming back. Jesus said the same thing. I know I'm going fast, but I'm trying to be sensitive to the time. But Jesus in Matthew 23, if you remember, to the first century national leaders in Israel, said, you will not see me again until you cry, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. So the first century Jewish leaders cried, crucify him, crucify him, and crown him with thorns. The next time he comes back, they're going to cry in fulfillment of Psalm 118 and in fulfillment of what Jesus said in Matthew 23, Hosanna, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Now, there was a remnant in the first advent that said that, uh, and there will also be some at the second advent who reject Christ and take the mark of the beast and don't uh, trust in him. But as a nation, the leaders having seen the blessings of the church age, which Paul says in Romans 9 through 11 are to provoke Israel to jealousy, will this time receive him by believing in him individually. And then, as Paul said in Romans 10, how can they call on him in whom they have not believed? But having believed, they can then call on him and uh, believe in, unto national deliverance into the kingdom. So check that out. Uh, and then uh, finally, and, and this is something that is so important in our culture today, the gospel is not inclusive. The gospel is not inclusive. In other words, the gospel is not one choice among many. And we live in a culture that, that often equates the gospel to like a buffet line at Luby's. And, you know, you can get there through Allah or through Buddha or through whatever you want. And, yeah, Jesus is one way, uh, but he's not the only way. And so I'm here to tell you that the message of God's word is that Jesus is the only way. Uh, Jesus saith unto him, I am the way, the truth, and life. And no man cometh unto the Father but by me. Amen, right? Uh, 
In the very early days of the church, Peter had testified to the Sanhedrin that there is no other name under heaven whereby we can be rescued from the penalty of sin. So we see in, in evangelicalism as a whole four broad approaches to eternal salvation. Most religions of the world, not all as you'll see in just a second, but most understand there's a problem. I mean, it doesn't take a rocket scientist to look around the world and think man is bad. I mean, evil is just pervasive. No matter what culture, you go to the deepest, darkest jungle and you got people eating each other. I mean, there's problems all around the world. So the question is, how do you solve that problem? How do you get man from being, you know, being sinful? Now, they may not even call it sinful, but they recognize it's a problem uh, or we wouldn't have prisons. And then to, to heaven, how do you solve the problem? That's the question on the table. And so uh, one option, religious pluralism, teaches that, well, yeah, we acknowledge man has a problem, but anything goes. That you can use faith, merit, works, any different religions, or any combination of the above, by the way, will get you to heaven. And that's just full-on pluralism, which is what the Antichrist will teach during that final seven-year period. He's going to bring all religions under one, and I talk about that in the final video of the 18 video series in spirit of the antichrist but we have a lot of people that believe that today you say potato i say potato but i say eh, you're wrong right and then within christianity there's a pervasive view today that again starts with the problem of man and, and acknowledges oh yeah we believe that christ died for sins and rose from the dead but they don't believe you have to know that or you have to explicitly place your faith in that to be saved. So this is called evangelical inclusivism, the notion that a Buddhist who has a faith in Buddha or a Muslim who has faith in Allah or whatever else, you know, whatever the religions teach, if their faith is sincere enough, then they'll get to heaven. They would acknowledge they're getting there based on Christ's death, but they might not have any idea, never placed explicit faith in anyone but Jesus Christ. So faith in Jesus Christ is not the only way. But of course, we reject that too. And then more and more, we're seeing uh, secular universalism, which just looks like this, that man is inherently good. There is no problem. We all go to heaven. Well, we know that's not true. Uh, so really, the only biblical answer, uh, according to the words of Scripture, is that sinful man, by faith alone in Christ alone, goes to heaven. That's it. And that's what we mean when we talk about biblical exclusivism. And when I say the gospel is not inclusive, it's exclusive. And I know that offends people in this culture where we like to draw circles of inclusion rather than lines of distinction. But the Bible is essentially one big line of distinction. That's what the Bible is. And it says, if you don't place your faith in Jesus Christ, the Son of God, who died and rose again for your sins, you cannot be saved. It's that simple. So there you go. The gospel is not a commitment or a contract or giving something to the Lord. It's not repenting of your sin or surrendering to Jesus as Lord and Master. It's not asking or inviting Jesus into your heart or praying a prayer or forsaking your old ways. It's certainly not a public profession, and it's not inclusive. It's very much exclusive, Christ alone. So what is the gospel? Well, the gospel is the good news that Jesus Christ, the Son of God, who died and rose again to pay my personal penalty for sin, is the only one who can give me the free gift of eternal life. If you believe that, you're saved according to the authority of Scripture. Amen?
All right. So I know we're probably a little over time. Do we want to do questions? Let's, if, you don't, if you need to leave, by all means, it will not offend me at all. Um, I'll just make fun of you after you leave. <laughs> but um, well, let, me, let me do take a, just a couple minutes here for some questions. I think that's always instructive. It helps me for sure. So anybody have a comment or question about anything we've talked about? We'll start back here first. Well, it depends what you put in the coffee. Uh, no, the question for the tape, in case you can't, didn't, didn't pick up on the recording, is according to the Calvinist scheme, how much is enough, right? That's, that's what we mean when we point out that the, the Reformed approach to the gospel is very subjective, right? Very, how, how much is enough? You know, the quote that we had in there from Piper, uh, there can be no doubt that what God will require at the final judgment for entrance into heaven is some measure of real, lived out, visible obedience to the will of God. Well, by his own definition, some measure is ambiguous. <laughs> I mean, they, they even define it subjectively while claiming it's not subjective. If, it's, if there's an identifiable objective measure, tell us the measure, right? So, yeah, I, I mean, I know I sound harsh. I don't mean to. I, I mean, these, we love these guys, and, and uh, we want to be respectful, but we just disagree with them emphatically because that's not the picture we get from God's Word. I saw another hand, I think, back here. Okay. You know, I, I always wonder, you know, when you hear them always say, well, you just got to be willing, Sure, yeah. So, yeah, the question is, or the comment is, a lot of times they'll say, well, you don't have to stop sinning, but you have to be willing to stop sinning, as if that makes a distinction. But a willingness is also subjective. Again, we can know what we believe, right? But how willing is willing enough, right? And God's Word says it's not of the will of man, brought forth not by the will of man. Yeah, Matt. Can you touch upon the text? Oh, yeah. So the question is about James 2, which is a, another key text for the Reformed view. And I'm sure you guys have, have taught through this uh, before. But James, just to put it in perspective, James is it's the famous passage, James 2, 14 to 26, where he says, uh, what shall we say then? Uh, can, uh, Faith without work. How does it begin? Let me let me find the text. And then I'm going to probably have to take my glasses off to read this small print. But we'll see. What pro I'm sorry. What doth it profit, my brethren, though a man says he hath faith and have not works? Can faith save him? Now, one of the things I love about the King James and also the New King James in this case is that it lets the text speak for itself and does not try to insert words. You read any other modern translation, and it's going to say, can such faith save him? Can that kind of faith save him? This is where they get that notion from. Because again, the Calvinists teach it's not what you believe, it's how you believe. It's the quality or kind of your faith that saves. And so they believe that James is, to your question, they believe that James is teaching that... Uh, Real faith, the non-spurious kind, will get, be guaranteed to produce good works. And if there are no good works, it's not real faith. So that's not what he's saying here at all. 
In fact, in James 2, in James, the book of James, he uses the word save, it's the word sozo, five times. And every time, and by the way, just like the word repent, the word save has to be defined in context. Would it shock you to know, it may, maybe if you've read Getting the Gospel Wrong, you already know this, or you maybe already knew it anyway, but the, the word, the word uh, I don't know, how, well, I did not mean for that to be funny. I just, my mind got going ahead of me here. The word save, the verb, so it was used 108 times in the New Testament. 58% of those times, it has nothing to do with heaven, hell, eternal life, eternal salvation, nothing. It's just like any other word. It means rescue or deliver. And in the context, you have to ask from what? Now, in English, we've become very prone to think of save only in the context of eternal salvation. So we'll say, when did you get saved? Or how many people got saved the other night? Or would you like to be saved? And we know what we mean. We're talking eternally from the penalty of sin to have eternal life. But the Bible uses it that way only about 40% of the time. For example, uh, the, the vast majority of times it just means physical deliverance, physical rescue from danger or harm or sickness. And uh, one example comes to mind in Matthew 8 when the disciples were on the boat and on the Sea of Galilee and the storm arose and they went and woke Jesus up and said, Lord, save us. They didn't mean, Lord, give us you know, eternal life. They meant we're about to drown, right? <laughs> so, and we see that again and again. So anyway, the, the, the passage here, and I'll get to the one specifically that you asked about in a second, but I'm just kind of setting the stage. But James 2, 14, when he says, What doth it profit, my brethren, though a man say he hath faith and have not works, can faith save him? In Greek, the required answer to that question is no. So James is saying that faith will not save you. That's what James is saying. Don't look at me. <laughs> I mean, that's just what James is saying. And because James is saying that, Luther, who studied in Greek, not an English translation, did not believe the book of James was in the Bible. Martin Luther's Bible had 65 books in it. Because in his mind, James was contradicting the plain, clear, unequivocal teaching of Scripture that we're saved by faith alone, not of works. Well, the thing that Luther misunderstood is that James is not talking about eternal salvation here. There's nothing in the context that brings up heaven, hell, the penalty of sin, eternal life. Nothing. In fact, everything about the context is very clear that he's talking about believers. He calls them brethren. Uh, he's just previously, uh, you know, talked in chapter 1 about how they were born from above. And he's challenged them at the assembly to make sure they treat others favor, you know, fairly and not show favoritism. And the whole book of James is a pastoral sermon to believers to, to, to live right. He talks about, you know, uh, how you should embrace the word. Uh, that was implanted within you. And he talks about how if you continue to sin, it's going to lead, you know, bring forth death. He talks about how you should, you know, rejoice and count it all joy when you uh, fall into diverse temptations and so forth. So the whole thing here is just a misunderstanding with the word save. But anyway, he goes on to say, you know, faith cannot save you. The idea there being it cannot deliver you from the the temporal consequences of sin. Faith will get you to heaven, but you know it's going to take some godly behavior and living out the new man to avoid the death-dealing consequences of sin. And then he uses an illustration. If a brother or sister be naked and destitute of daily food, and one of you say unto them, Depart in peace, be ye warmed and filled, notwithstanding you give them not those things which are needful to the body, 
what doth it profit? By the way, the word profit there means to heap up or accumulate. He's used it twice so far. What doth it profit if you have faith but not works? And what does it profit if you see a poor destitute person and you just say, God bless you, but don't give them any clothes? In both cases, saying, what value is that going to be temporally? He's not suggesting that they're you know, going to go to hell or that if you don't have works, you're going to go to hell. And then he says, even so, faith, if it hath not works, is dead being alone. Now, the interesting thing, if you go back to Romans chapter 7, I think it's around verse 4 or 5, uh, Paul uses the same word dead when he says, until the law came, sin was dead. Now, the way Reformed people interpret the word dead, they're saying that if you, you know, it means it's non-existent, that if you don't have works, your faith is spurious, it's not real, it's fake, dead. Right? In fact, one of their big mantras is, dead men can't believe. Right? They, they, they think it, unless the Holy Spirit regenerates you, then you, you're not even possible to believe, and God forces you to believe at that moment. The problem with that is, as we can see in Romans 7, dead doesn't mean non-existent. Paul was not saying that until the law came, sin didn't exist. <laughs> sin very much existed prior to the giving of the law on Mount Sinai, but what the law did was invigorated sin. It highlighted it. It made it more clear. It created transgressions, right? In the same way, he's saying here that faith without works is, is useless. It's, it's, it's not as effective, and indeed it's not on earth, right? He's not even addressing the issue of whether you're going to get into heaven. That goes without saying, and his readers certainly understood what it took to get to heaven, faith alone and Christ alone. He's, he's adding on that. He's talking about sanctification here, and he's talking about if you have faith but you don't have works, how's that working out for you, right? So then he, uses, he employs a very interesting common uh, rhetorical technique called the objector-reply formula uh, where he anticipates uh, what people might be thinking. And we do this in, in English oratory as well. Like if you're making a pretty profound point. I, I probably have said it already between last night and tonight at times. I might say something like, well, I know what you're thinking, you know, and then I try to explain why, you know, what you're thinking isn't the case. I'm, I'm sort of anticipating an objection and addressing it before you have the chance to bring it up. And so that's what's going on with this famous passage about the demons. The interesting thing is uh, none of our English translations really accurately follow the dialogue with the quotation marks correctly. Um, but when you compare other examples in Scripture, you see that this dialogue of the objector-reply formula always begins with something along the lines of a man will say or someone will say, and then he quotes the objection, and then it switches back to the writer responding to the objection, and it usually is indicated by something like, oh, fool, or ye fool, here's, here's why you're wrong. And then it concludes with the writer once again speaking to the entire group. And if you follow in Greek the actual number in the pronouns, you, it's very clear what's going on. So he begins in verse uh, 18, Yea, a man may say, this is the objector. So, so let's sort of act it out this way. So James is talking, preaching. He's in chapter 2. Of course, they didn't have chapters. It was just one long letter as a sermon. He gets to this point. And he says, yea, a man may say, and then he comes over here. Well, no, let's, let's see. This is your left, so that's good. We want the fool to be on the left, right? So he says to the, you know, a man will say, and then he quotes what the objection is. And in Greek, uh, he says um, in verse 
20, he, he, he responds to the fool. He says, but wilt thou know, O vain man? Uh, uh, some translations say, O foolish man. That's what vain means. And, and the thou there is singular. Singular. He's talking to the objector. So now we go over here, and now James is saying, O vain man, you want to know why you're wrong? And he responds to him. And then you get down to verse uh, 22, and he turns back to the listeners or readers in this case. Seest thou how faith uh, wrought with this works, and by works was faith made perfect? He's now talking once again to the audience because it's plural. You is plural. If this was a Texan version, it would be y'all. That's what he'd be saying, right? So what we need to understand is this famous statement that people like to quote all the time, that thou believest there is one God, thou doest well, the devils also believe and tremble. That statement is made by the objector, by the fool. <laughs> so the objector's point is, just to summarize it, the, James is saying that faith and works have a dynamic relationship. That, you know, faith will get you to heaven. That's not what he's even talking about. What he's talking about in terms of life, if you have works and faith working together, living out your practice in life, reflecting the, your position in Christ, it's going to have a benefit. People will be helped. You know, you'll set a good example. You'll be rewarded. In fact, up in verses 12 and 13, he actually alludes to the judgment seat of Christ. He doesn't use that phrase, but he talks about when we're going to be judged. And the only place biblically in the New Testament where believers are ever said to be evaluated, it's not a judgment for heaven or hell, but evaluated, is the bema. So he has to be alluding to that. So uh, you'll be rewarded appropriately at that time if, if you have works to go with your faith. So James is arguing to his audience that, you know, you really need to live out your faith. Faith without works is useless, right? Not about getting you to heaven, but in life. The objector is arguing just the opposite. No, 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 James, there's no connection between faith and works. And he says, you can show me your faith without works. I can show you my faith with works. And then he says, look at the demons. So the demons believe there is one God. Uh, and uh, or you, he says, you believe, James, he's, he's arguing with James, you, James, believe there's one God and you do good works. The demons believe the same thing and they tremble. They don't do good works. So see, I've proven my point. I've got two people believing the same thing, have, each having different actions out of it. And it, it doesn't matter. Faith and works don't have to correspond is what, James, is what the objector is saying. And James says, oh, fool. And then he uses Abraham as an example. So the, the point is, James is saying faith and works do have a dynamic relationship, a beneficial relationship, and you should live out your faith with good works. Should. Not guaranteed. Uh, it's not good if you don't, but it does not have any bearing on whether you go to heaven or not. And the example, if we had time, we could go into the rest of the passage, but the example he uses with Abraham is very telling. Because when did Abraham have faith? Genesis 15, 6. When, according to the biblical narrative, did he live out his faith? with Isaac, Genesis 22. I forget, I think it's like 30 or some odd year, 40 years later. So if the Reformed theology crowd, the Calvinists had been alive back then, for 30 years they'd have been calling Abraham an unbeliever. <laughs> You're not saved. You're never doing anything with your life. You're like, you know, no good works. Finally, he takes Isaac up on the mountain. Oh, well, now, you, now you've proven it. Now you're really saved, right? So that's James's point. His, but, but his point was his faith and his works were working together at that moment, not about getting him to heaven, but that was the natural response. So anyway, the demons believe and tremble is not a proof text 
to say, well, you can believe intellectually, but until you have fiducia and really promise or pledge, you're not saved. That's not what's going on there at all. Any other, I think there was one other hand before I went on that long answer to what you probably wanted to be a simple question. Any other comments or questions about anything we've talked about? Awesome. Well, you guys are great. I really appreciate it. Really looking forward to tomorrow. Now, tomorrow, let me tell you what we're going to do. In the morning at the 9 o'clock hour, we're going to talk. We're going to go to Romans 12. It's going to be a text-based message. These have been more theological. We're going to go through Hebrews 12, 1 and 2 and talk about uh, this idea of discipleship and, 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 and you know, I'm calling it grace uh, during the race of life. And then in the worship hour, we're going to, as I talked about, talk about heaven, grace face to face. And then tomorrow night, we'll come back for our final session. I'm going to walk you through a simple presentation of the gospel that you can do on the back of a napkin or any simple a diagram to share the gospel. So be sure and sign up for the newsletter and I'll be glad to stick around and answer questions as well. Shall I pray? All right. Father, thank you for our time together tonight. We thank you for your word so rich with truth and so encouraging and profitable and gives us everything we need for life and godliness even in these troubling times and lord we just pray that we would embrace it and live by it and stay in the word and uh, lord thank you for this church and for our time and we ask your blessings now as we depart in jesus name amen, amen.